Well, thank you indeed for that very uh, warm welcome, and thank you, Dr. O'Donnell, for that beautiful uh, introduction, but also for the invitation to come here. I'm really thrilled to see Kristen College for the first time. As Dr. O'Donnell mentioned, um, I was a student at Catholic U for three years back in the early 80s, and I would come out here frequently to hike and to camp in this uh, area. In fact, a place called Goonie Creek, I still remember. I don't know, it must be around here someplace, but we came out to you know, Front Royal and then went down into the, uh, the Blue Ridge. So I know this part of the country well, and, and I love it. I also believe so strongly in your mission here. The renewal of Catholic higher education is indispensable to the mission of the church. And Christendom College is a place where that light is held uh, very high. So I'm honored to be part of this, um, part of this uh, family here tonight. Um, whenever I'm speaking after dinner, I always remember about 10 years ago, Cardinal Martini of Milan had been invited to speak to all the priests of Chicago at our convocation. Well, there were about 800 priests in this huge room. And prior to the talk, there had been a, a cocktail hour and a half, maybe. And that was followed by dinner, where wine was served. And then Cardinal Martini got up to the podium <laughs> afterwards, and he gave a, a very serious kind of heavy paper in a very heavy accent. Within 20 minutes, a third of the presbyterate was asleep and snoring. <laughs> well, the next morning, uh, there's a priest in Chicago who was the um, MC for the event. He's kind of a kind of a wag, and he got up, and Cardinal Martini was right there, but he said, "Well, that was a dry martini." <laughs> so I don't want to be a, a dry martini uh, for you tonight. I hope, especially, that the students in uh, philosophy and theology might. Uh, perk up their ears, but also those who are students in history. I understand a lot of you are majoring in history, and I hope anyone interested in the dialogue between the church and the culture will find something in the paper to, uh, to spark your imagination. Okay. All my life, I've heard spirited advocacy for the dialogue between the church and the wider culture. But this call has come almost exclusively from the church and not from the culture. Putting the church and the world in conversation has tended to mean that Catholicism must make itself intelligible to politicians, artists, scientists, and social theorists, precisely by utilizing the language and conceptual forms of secular politics, art, science, and social theory. Rarely, if ever, have I heard the avatars of the culture eager to submit their manner of thinking and behavior to the discipline of the church or to make themselves intelligible to religious people. It is this one-way quality of the conversation that I submit to you is problematic. John Milbank, one of the most incisive ecclesial commentators on the scene today, has said that the pathos of modern theology is its false humility, by which he means its tendency to seek the favor of its culture despisers by aping their style of thought and expression. As Karl Barth indicated nearly 100 years ago, the sophisticated critics of Christianity have proven remarkably unresponsive to the overtures of Schleiermacher and his numerous disciples. What I've called in some of my writings beige Catholicism, a Catholicism that's too culturally accommodating, excessively apologetic, shifting and unsure in its identity, is the fruit of this false humility and of this largely one-way conversation. So, what I want to do in the course of this talk is to explore more fully 
the theoretical roots of beige Catholicism in the typically modern and correlational models of theology. And next, to propose, with the help of John Henry Newman, an assimilationist approach to the church culture dialogue. Then, in the light of this method, I want to show how an assimilating church might respond to three positive and three negative features of the American political culture. So there's the outline if you're keeping score now in this paper. So first of all, beige Catholicism. What is it and where does it come from? The Christian church's willingness to engage the secular culture finds its origins in Paul's address to Greek intellectuals on the Areopagus in Athens sometime in the 50s of the first century and in Justin Martyr's decision in the mid-second century to place Christian philosophy, that's his term, in conversation with the Renian Platonism of the time. At its best, Christianity has resisted the temptation to ask with Tertullian, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? No Christian thinker better exemplified the practice of ecclesial cultural conversation than Thomas Aquinas, who effected, as you know, a still stunning adaptation of Aristotelian language to evangelical purposes. But during the modern period, Christian theologians began to engage the culture in a new and distinctive manner, allowing themselves to be positioned by the concerns and demands of the secular world. It is to this way of establishing the rapport between gospel and culture that I object. What was its provenance? Given the enormously negative impact of the wars of religion, which had devastated post-Reformation Europe, many modern thinkers began to speculate about a form of religiosity that was, in its universality, both rational and nonviolent. It was, they concluded, the very particularity of positive religion and its authoritative interpretation that caused such trouble. Thus, for example, Catholics claimed the Eucharist involves the real presence of the Lord, whereas most Protestants claimed that it is an evocative symbol. And since there was no way, finally, to adjudicate the dispute, violence was the only recourse. It's fascinating, I think, by the way, to read many of the Western reactions to the events of September 11th and to see these same modern concerns about revealed religion and violence coming to the fore. And so we saw in Descartes, Spinoza, Locke, Kant, Jefferson, Hegel, Emerson, to name just a few, the typically modern desire to set aside the peculiarities of positive religion and to embrace a universal religion of reason. Thomas Jefferson, literally taking a, st a straight razor to the pages of the New Testament, endeavoring to extricate from it all those passages that smack of the supernatural is a particularly apt illustration of the process. But the clearest exemplar of the modern religious style was Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern liberal Protestantism. Religion for Schleiermacher is not ethics or metaphysics or aesthetics or even revelation, but rather a mysticism grounded in what he called the feeling of absolute dependency. This feeling, in principle open to all, provides the criterion, he thought, by which the elements of positive religion, dogma, doctrine, liturgy, and practice, can and should be judged. Along more or less Cartesian lines, Schleiermacher suggests that the objective and particular be brought before the bar of the subjective and universal 
for adjudication. Experience measures doctrine rather than the inverse. The radicality and thoroughness of Schleiermacher's revolution can be seen in his marginalization of the doctrine of the Trinity. To an appendix of his magnum opus, the Glaubenslehre, the dogma that generations of Christian theologians took to be central to the faith is not discussed in the body of Schleiermacher's work, since its contents did not correspond, he thought, in any direct way to the feeling of absolute dependency. Schleiermacher's fondest hope was that this experience-based and purified version of Christianity would prove attractive, both intellectually and morally, to the enlightened critics of classical religion. Now, the mainstream of modern theological liberalism has raced down the Schleiermacher Autobahn. Thus, <laughs> Rudolf Otto grounds authentic religion in our sense of the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Paul Tillich roots it in ultimate concern. Karl Rahner sees it in the experience of standing in the presence of absolute mystery. David Tracy anchors it in certain limit experiences that both challenge and provoke us. In all these cases, some sort of universal religious sensibility becomes the norm for reading and judging the tradition of revelation. In much of liberalism, this basic move is broadened out so as to include the two categories of the world or the situation on the one hand and revelation on the other. And thus, the fundamental project becomes the effecting of a correlation, as Paul Tillich's term, between the two realms. Now, problems with this method abound, but I'll draw attention to what I consider its fundamental flaw. In the measure that theological liberalism allows revelation to be positioned by something outside of itself, it runs counter to the structuring logic of the New Testament. In the first chapter of Paul to the Colossians, we find this breathtakingly maximalist claim about Jesus Christ. In him, all things were created, things visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. And in the prologue to the Johannine Gospel, we hear that the Logos made flesh in Jesus Christ is that through which all things are made, that apart from him nothing comes to be. These claims imply that Jesus Christ is the reasonability that positions, explains, and situates everything else, everything within finite creation. Nature, humanity, politics, art, science, culture, the planets and stars, things visible and invisible, all of it comes from him and centers around him. But this means in turn that Jesus cannot be positioned or explained from any point of vantage external to him. Both Karl Barth on the Protestant side and Hans Urs von Balthasar on the Catholic side complain that the principal problem with modern theology is that it permits Christ to be situated under the more general heading of religion or religious experience, whereas such a move is directly repugnant to the incarnational logic of Colossians and the prologue to John. For those who navigate the Schleiermacher Autobahn, 
Experience becomes the measure of Christ. But the Jesus of Colossians and the Gospel of John must be the measure of experience, as he is of everything else. A similar difficulty emerges when we analyze the various correlational methods of contemporary theological liberalism. In Tillich's version, for instance, culture, the situation, experience, raise the questions to which the theologian attempts to coordinate the answers of the biblical tradition. Seems reasonable enough. But as any reader of the Platonic Dialogues realizes, the one who poses the questions always determines the flow and nature of the conversation, how Socrates dominates and controls those conversations. More to it, the questioner provides the context in which the answer qua answer will appear. So once again, this correlational style requires that a dimension of finite reality positions the logos by which and for which the whole of finite reality is made. It is none other than this dominance of the environing culture over revelation that produces what I've called beige Catholicism. Now, does this critique of modern correlationalism and experientialism in theology mean that the Christian church is doomed to a sectarian retreat from the dialogue with contemporary culture? The nearly universal tendency to answer that question affirmatively is testament to the pervasive influence of the liberal model. But in point of fact, as we saw earlier, numerous Christian thinkers, Paul, Justin, Origen, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas, to name just a few, conversed very creatively with the wider society of their time, but they did so in accord with the Christocentric logic of revelation and not in accord with liberal assumptions. I want to explain now the nature of this approach more thoroughly by drawing attention to the thought of John Henry Newman, a theologian who was simultaneously deeply invested in a dialogue with the culture of his time and, in his own words, quote, a lifelong opponent of liberalism in matters of religion, close quote. In his great essay on the development of Christian doctrine, Newman argued that one of the marks of a healthy and properly developing church is the power of assimilation. That is to say, its ability to engage its environment, taking in what it can and resisting what it must. A robust organism draws into itself and adapts to its purposes certain features of its world, and it throws off other elements that would compromise or threaten its essential structure. Newman observes shrewdly that an unhealthy animal will, soon enough, be itself assimilated by the stronger animals around it. In light of these observations, might I suggest a theological relationship to the culture that is assimilationist rather than correlationist. The church ought to reach out to the world but never allow the world, as the post-conciliar slogan had it, to set the agenda for the church. The body of Christ ought to move confidently within the environment around it, adapting to itself whatever is good, true, and beautiful, and expelling whatever is alien to its form of life using all the time its own organic structure as criterion and norm. Something I'd like especially to stress is this. A beige, culturally accommodating Catholicism is incapable of both proper resistance to and proper absorption of the wider world. 
The willingness of the Vatican II Fathers to turn to modern society in a missionary spirit was born of their confidence in the essential doctrinal and moral integrity of the church. In his recent remarks on the right interpretation of Vatican II, Pope Benedict XVI has observed that the purpose of the council was not to make the church more like the world, but rather to make the world more like the church. Accordingly, he suggests a somewhat wider interpretation of John XXIII's famous trope of the opening of the windows as expressive of the church's desire to let the wisdom, truth, and spiritual vitality of the church out for the sake of transforming the society. Baltazar meant much the same thing when he spoke in the 1950s of raising the bastions of the church, R-A-Z-I-N-G, raising the bastions of a church still crouching too defensively behind its own walls. To be sure, the Vatican II Fathers called for and implemented changes in the church, but these changes had a missionary and evangelical purpose. They were meant to render the church more capable of drawing the logoi of the world into the logos of Jesus Christ to assimilate rather than to correlate. Sadly, I would say, after the council, this turning toward the modern society was interpreted in far too many quarters as a turning into modern society, assimilation devolving into accommodation. What I've called beige Catholicism is the result of this hermeneutical mistake. Now, in this next part of the paper, I want to show, uh, what I want to show in the next part of the paper is an engagement in a reading of our American culture from the standpoint of the assimilating church. So to make it a little more precise now, what about our culture in dialogue with the Logos of Jesus? Showing how the community gathered around Jesus Christ ought to relate to the positive and negative elements within our own culture. I'm consciously turning away from the dominant liberal model of analyzing the situation in order to put it into correlation with the answers coming from the tradition. Instead, I will endeavor to show precisely why the church must resist certain features of our culture and precisely how it can adapt others to itself. So let's turn first to the negative side of the ledger. There is, within the American political culture, a strong strain of Hobbesianism, mediated to it largely by John Locke by way of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Hobbes' political philosophy is intelligible only against the background of certain shifts in metaphysics and epistemology at the dawn of the modern period. Under the influence of the nominalism of William of Ockham and the univocal conception of being formulated by Duns Scotus, early modern thinkers tended to see the universe as composed of isolated individuals, particles in motion, to use Hobbes' term. This conception had a clear social implication, and Hobbes saw it. Whereas for Thomas Aquinas, the human being is by nature a political animal. That is to say, connected to everyone else in the civil society by ontological and not merely conventional bonds. For Thomas Hobbes, the human is by nature non-political, self-interested, moved by basic passions of self-preservation. This is why Hobbes' state of nature is the state of war productive of a life that is, in his famous quote, solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. 
Political organization, on Hobbes' reading, comes about through an artificially contrived social contract in which people reluctantly surrender some of their rights in order to maintain some modicum of peace. Because of this reductive understanding of government, the ethical and spiritual purpose of politics is set aside. The role of the state is the adjudication of disputes among its citizens, and ultimately, the protection of each against the violent attacks of others. In the classical context, the raison d'etre of government was the encouragement of moral excellence, whereas in the Hobbesian framework, it is the maintenance of order. In his political philosophy, John Locke softened, softened and modified Hobbes' social contract theory, but kept its most fundamental features, including and especially the artificiality of the political arrangement and the severe truncation of a sense of the common good. Jefferson gives voice to the Hobbes-Locke perspective when he speaks in the Declaration of Independence of the right to pursue happiness as one sees fit. Most Western philosophers from the classical period through the high Middle Ages considered the determination of the objective nature of happiness to be the central philosophical question. And they furthermore held that the purpose of politics is to conduce, at least to some degree, to the attainment of this objective happiness. In accord with his distinctively modern assumptions, Jefferson relativizes and subjectivizes the meaning of happiness and effectively dissociates it from the work of the government. Within the confines of this brief presentation, I can but gesture towards some of the negative consequences of this fundamentally Hobbesian conception of politics. First, we notice the individualism and litigiousness of our society. When the common good remains unexplored and largely unarticulated, and when the government's purpose is reduced to that of the adjudication of disputes, we do tend to lose our corporate social identity and a shared sense of moral direction. Further, when we no longer understand ourselves to be ontological siblings, as in Thomas Aquinas, connected to one another by the deepest metaphysical bonds, we do indeed devolve into a collectivity of individuals clamoring for rights and special prerogatives. The Hobbesianism of our society can be seen as well, as Robert Cranach points out, in the flattening and coarsening of our popular culture. When self-expression and the satisfaction of desire become the supreme values, aesthetic standards are either overlooked or rather aggressively marginalized. But the Hobbes influence shows itself perhaps most tragically in the government's unwillingness to intervene firmly when clear moral values are under attack in the society. Two decisions of the US Supreme Court are especially illuminating in this regard. In Roe v. Wade, the court famously found a right to privacy buried in the provisions of the Constitution and on that basis allowed for practically unlimited access to abortion throughout the United States. But the court's resolution of the matter of Casey versus Planned Parenthood is even more sobering and disturbing. Expanding on the principle of privacy, the justices decided that it belongs to the very nature of individual liberty to determine the meaning of one's own life, indeed the meaning of existence and of the universe. I'm quoting directly from that uh, finding. It would be hard to imagine a more radical expression of Hobbesian relativism and individualism. 
and I would say indifference to public morality. Another negative feature of the American culture with certain roots in Hobbes is our typically modern understanding of freedom as choice. The Dominican scholar Serve Pinkers has drawn a simple but illuminating distinction between this conception of liberty and the idea of freedom that held sway in the classical and Christian periods. The former he calls the freedom of indifference, and the latter, the freedom for excellence. On the modern reading, freedom is the capacity to hover above the yes and the no, and to make a determination in one direction or the other without any coercion, either interior or exterior. In this context, law, discipline, and virtue are in an extremely tensive relationship with freedom since they represent limitation on the range of choice. Now, freedom for excellence, on the other hand, is not primarily independent choice, but rather the disciplining of desire so as to make the achievement of the good first possible and then effortless. That's from Pink Harris. It's a very helpful clarification. Freedom for excellence is the disciplining of desire so as to make the achievement of the good first possible and then effortless. Example, one becomes a free speaker of the English language, not so much by cultivating his power to choose, to speak any way you want, but rather by submitting himself to a whole series of rules and disciplines and masters when those directives are sufficiently internalized, that person becomes capable of expressing in English whatever he wants. He becomes free. Or one emerges as a free golfer, not in the measure that she swings the club according to her personal whim, but inasmuch as she submits herself to a strict and densely objective nexus of rules, practices, directives, and restrictions. Anyone that's tried to play golf knows what I'm talking about. Just go out there and swing the club any way you feel like, well, you'll be a pretty unsuccessful golfer, right? In this process, she becomes capable of responding well and creatively to the ever-shifting demands of the game of golf. Given this notion of freedom, liberty is by no means opposed to the law, but rather finds itself in relation to the law. For the advocates of the freedom, of, uh, freedom for excellence, self-expression is far less important than the ordering of the self in the direction of the good. As you know, John Paul II was one of the most eloquent defenders of freedom in the second half of the 20th century. But throughout his pontificate, he insisted upon the correlation between liberty and truth. On a freedom of indifference reading, this juxtaposition is puzzling at best. But on a freedom for excellence interpretation, it's altogether coherent. There's probably no word that stirs the American heart more than freedom, no value more prized than liberty. But the mainstream of American culture interprets that term along modern lines, construing it as spontaneous personal choice and self-determination. This is, of course, repugnant to a biblical tradition that identifies the seizing of the prerogative to determine the nature of good and evil for oneself as the original sin. One might say that the transition from the freedom 
for excellence to the freedom of indifference is tantamount to the fall. A third negative feature of the American culture that must be resisted by an assimilating church is the privatization of religion. Stanley Hauerwas, the Methodist theologian, has commented that the modern political states forged with religion a sort of peace treaty in the wake of the wars of religion, the central stipulation of which is that the state would tolerate religious practice as long as it remained essentially a private matter. Richard John Newhouse's naked public square, that is to say a political arena from which religious ideas and values have been aggressively excluded, is the fruit of this privatization. But authentic Christianity can never be privatized, precisely because it speaks of the creator God, who grounds and rules all things. For biblical people, God is not so much one being among many, as in pagan, deist, or nominalist conceptions, but rather the creator and ground of all finite things, ipsum esse subsistens, rather than en sumum, in the language of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas always prefers that language of God is the subsistent act of to be itself. But this means that all areas of life, the public and the private, the social and the individual, the natural and the conventional, all of it belong to God and are related to God, much as the elements that make up a rose window in a Gothic cathedral are connected to the center. In point of fact, a thoroughly secular realm, an arena of life untouched by the sacred, is made possible only by a deeply unbiblical reading of God. You'll see it in much of, of deism. Accordingly, the church cannot be one element among many within the society, a collectivity of persons blandly cultivating a private set of convictions. Instead, instead, the church should be that institution which names the ways that God impinges upon every aspect of existence and then encourages participation in the work of God. That's the church in a leavening role in the midst of our society. To be sure, and here's where we've got to be very aware of, of the modern suspicion of religion as violent. To be sure, the Christian church enters into these realms nonviolently and using only the power of persuasion. Remember John Paul said over and over again, the church does not impose, the church proposes. Now, God knows we've had some history of imposition, but we shouldn't be about that game. We should be proposing to the culture, acting as a leaven within it. But having said that, the church certainly doesn't absent itself from the culture in a stance of false humility. In regard to these three negative features, Hobbesian individualism, a modern conception of freedom as choice, and the privatization of religion, a robust church should assume the stance that Augustine assumed vis-a-vis -vis the corrupt society of ancient Rome, namely one of honest and unambiguous opposition. Augustine attempted in the city of God neither correlation with nor accommodation to what he took to be the ersatz justice and peace of the Roman Empire. Instead, he named the sins of the Roman social order and proposed an alternative, what he called the civitas dei, an order predicated upon the worship of the true God. However, to remain within a purely reactive framework would be simplistic and counterproductive. For the assimilating church is also eager to take in and take up what it can from the culture. It is to a consideration of this task that we now turn. And don't worry, we're getting toward the end here. This is now the church 
resisting what it must, and now assimilating what it can from the culture. Thomas Aquinas is today probably the most revered and authoritative voice within the Catholic intellectual tradition. It's therefore easy to forget that in his own time, he was anything but universally admired. In fact, the innovative synthesis of Aristotelian metaphysics and biblical revelation that he was affecting inspired a number of vocal opponents, one of whom famously commented that Thomas was diluting the wine of the gospel with the water of a pagan philosopher. To this critique, Thomas deftly responded, no, rather I'm transforming water into wine. <laughs> Thank you on behalf of Thomas Aquinas. Um, that retort of Aquinas beautifully expresses what Newman meant by the church's assimilation of positive features within its environment. It does not simply absorb them. It elevates and perfects them in accord with that great Catholic principle, gratia supponent et perfecit naturam. Grace supposes but also perfects nature. As I've already hinted, one problem with a beige Catholicism is that it's incapable of defending itself against truly hostile features of the wider culture. But a second and perhaps even more dangerous problem is that it remains incapable of appropriately transfiguring the positive dimensions of that same culture. A particularly good example of this process of elevating assimilation is the manner in which John Paul II embraced the human rights tradition of the Western democracies, especially the US, becoming, by the end of the 20th century, its most passionate advocate on the world stage. There was no greater defender of freedom and of, of the liberal democracies than John Paul II. Now, at first blush, this seems odd, given my rather harsh critique of the Hobbes, Locke, Jefferson articulation of human rights. So a distinction is in order. For the modern political tradition, human rights flow ultimately from desire. Hobbes felt we have a right to life and the avoidance of violent death precisely because those are the things that we most passionately, indeed inevitably, want. Locke expressed the same idea with admirable laconicism. We have a right to those things that we cannot not desire, namely life and its essential supports, liberty and property. Jefferson took in this Lockean understanding, only replacing property with the pursuit of happiness. But John Paul II understood human rights within a different theoretical framework. As a biblical person, he saw them as grounded not so much in the power of subjective desire as in the facts of creation and redemption. Freely created by God, mercifully redeemed by Jesus Christ, every individual no matter her background, education, skill level, ethnic origin, etc., is a subject of inviolable dignity and worth. And it's from this identity that rights and a claim to justice flow. For Thomas Aquinas, whom John Paul follows here carefully, justice is the act of rendering to each what is due. And what is due to each person is respect, love, protection, freedom, and the basic necessities of life. Thus, when John Paul spoke glowingly and sincerely of the human rights tradition in our country, he was claiming ideas that were still too redolent of Hobbes and elevating them into a new evangelical framework. He was 
creatively assimilating a key feature of the secular culture into the organic life of the church. A second most important positive dimension of our political culture is our experiment in civilized pluralism. When John Paul came to Chicago in 1978, he celebrated mass on the Lake Michigan uh, lakefront, preaching to a typically American crowd drawn from numerous races, backgrounds, and religious persuasions. In the course of his homily, he commented positively on the American national motto, e pluribus unum, observing that it's an echo of the church's call to draw the many nations of the world into unity around Christ. The biblical theologian N.T. Wright has said that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God was in continuity with the ancient hope that the tribes of Israel would one day be gathered and that through a renewed Israel, the tribes of the world would be gathered into unity around the right worship of God. He further argued that the church understands itself in accord with St. Paul's musings in the 9th through 11th chapters of Romans to be the new Israel, which is to say the instrument through which God has chosen to unite the myriad languages, peoples, and cultures of the world into one body of interdependent cells, molecules, and organs. What John Paul was recognizing was the manner in which the American model expressed a kind of participation in and anticipation of this full eschatological drawing of the many into one. And what he implied, therefore, is that an assimilation of the American political practice of ordered unity and diversity is a desideratum. But what precisely is the nature of this practice that John Paul was trying to assimilate? John Courtney Murray argued throughout his career that the separation of church and state and the granting of full religious liberty should be construed as, his language now, articles of peace. That's to say, ways of fostering civil conversation and practical cooperation among those who entertain varying religious and philosophical perspectives. Neither should be read as religious indifferentism or as an invitation to the privatization of the faith and the stripping bare of the public square. Rather, they are the means by which those who disagree most radically can nevertheless find a sort of practical unity. And in this, the articles of peace are grounded in the instincts of the natural law, which are, on Aquinas' own reading, a participation in the eternal law, which was made manifest in Revelation. Perhaps this is why the fathers of Vatican II were willing, in Dignitatis Humanae, to baptize, if you want, the distinctively modern practice of separating church and state and recognizing religious liberty as a fundamental right. And perhaps this is why both Murray and John Paul II were willing to appreciate e pluribus unum as a real, though imperfect, echo of the church's own voice. I'd like to indicate, just to make this a bit clearer, a link between Courtney Murray's articulation of American liberalism and that of Jeffrey Stout. In his Democracy and Tradition, Stout contends that a healthy American-style pluralism is not ideologically opposed to the presence of religion in the public conversation. Rather, it is, as Murray suggested, simply a means of adjudicating disputes in a civil manner among people with radically different conceptions of the whole. 
Such non-ideological liberalism is not opposed to the respectful and thoughtful injection of religious convictions into political discourse. As prime examples of this style of religious speech in the public square, Stout offers the second inaugural address of Lincoln and the I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King. Addressing the nation in a political discourse as the Civil War was coming to a close, Lincoln spoke in the cadences of an Old Testament prophet, using explicitly biblical language and referencing the punishment, providence, and mercy of God. And King, speaking in a public forum on an issue of pressing political significance and standing on the steps of Lincoln's memorial, drew massively on the moral and spiritual heritage of the Christian tradition. Neither Lincoln nor King should be read as blurring the distinction between church and state or as attempting to impose a sectarian vision on the nation. Rather, each creatively and non-aggressively introduced his most deeply felt religious convictions into the public forum. Stout suggests, I think quite rightly, that Mario Cuomo's famous distinction between personal conviction and public performance represents an extremely ham-handed version of what Lincoln and King handled so deftly. In fact, Cuomo's sharp dichotomization seems more in line with the ideological brand of liberalism, urged by John Rawls or Jurgen Habermas, whereby religion as such must be excluded from properly public forms of political speech. It seems to me that the kind of American pluralism advocated by Murray and Stout is what the church can and should assimilate to itself. A third, now and final, positive element in the American political culture is the idea of a limited government, carefully structured through a system of checks and balances. G.K. Chesterton commented that the single greatest contribution of Christianity to the West is the doctrine of original sin. The deep conviction that there is something wrong with us at a level so elemental that we cannot, even in principle, fix it on our own. Both classical and modern philosophy come together in advocating a version of human perfectibility. Plato and Aristotle thought that we could reach full flourishing through growth in knowledge and virtue. And Marx and Hegel in the modern period thought we could achieve the same end through institutional change and social progress. Against both stands biblical Christianity. A constant theme of the scriptures is that left to their own devices, human beings tend to go bad. Even the heroes of the Bible, Moses, Jacob, Abraham, Isaiah, Elijah, are riven with flaws and stand constantly in need of the divine grace. More to it, there's no literature anywhere in the world that's so consistently critical of government and governors than the Bible. When the people of Israel ask for a king, the prophet Samuel warns them. I'm quoting now. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. That's 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 17. I think, friends, that's a very important text for us to keep in mind. You know, there's the biblical vision of, of the danger 
in, in an unrestricted trust in the human capacity for perfectibility. How perennial that description sounds, how it seems to flow from today's headlines. I'm from Illinois. We know all about corrupt government. Well, way before Blagojevich, there was Samuel. When the people persist in asking for kings, so they might be like the other nations, never a good sign in the Bible, Yahweh proceeds to give them, beginning with Saul, a line of some of the most dysfunctional, stupid, violent, and idolatrous leaders in human history. Even David, the best of the Israelite kings, is an adulterer and a murderer. It's as though Yahweh is saying, I told you about these kings. <laughs> Men and women formed by these biblical stories and by the doctrine of original sin will be profoundly skeptical of government and its officers, and they will embody their suspicion institutionally in a number of ways. Thus, our founders determined that political leaders would be subject regularly to the scrutiny of the electorate, that they would, even while exercising power, be watched, checked, questioned by many others, both inside and outside the government. The Congress watches the president. The president checks the Congress. The judiciary watches both of them. And appointments to the judiciary flow from the Congress and the president. And everybody is critiqued by a skeptical and free press, which is in turn disciplined through the dynamics of the market. This is a system born of the experience of being tyrannized. And it's one with which Samuel the prophet would be entirely sympathetic. But even more fundamentally, the idea of a limited government is grounded in the biblical sense that law and justice do not flow finally from the government, but from God. That law and political institutions are under God was a conviction of both the emancipation movement in the 19th century and the civil rights movement in the 20th. Martin Luther King could write his letter from the Birmingham City Jail urging civil disobedience precisely because he knew that unjust laws and cruel social practices can and should be challenged through appeal to an authority higher than that of the government. Interestingly, King, in that very letter, appealed to Thomas Aquinas, who taught the legitimacy of resistance to tyrants and to unjust law. Thomas's permission of civil disobedience was rooted in his understanding of the positive law as a declension of the natural law which is itself a declension of the eternal law, which is identical to the divine mind. In the final analysis, the simplest traffic regulation, if it's just and good, is expressive of God's providential care for the world. And the most respected and venerable social practice, if it is unjust, runs counter to God's purposes. The great Catholic tradition knows that when the connection between the positive law and the natural law is severed, totalitarianism of either the left or the right inevitably follow. Therefore, this rich American instinct that government should be limited and disciplined both from without and from within is something that the church can and should very much assimilate to itself and adapt to its purposes. Now just a, a brief conclusion. As I suggested at the outset, the question is not whether the church ought to engage in a dialogue with the wider culture, but rather how. To deny the legitimacy of that conversation altogether is to revert into sectarianism. And as Omri de Lubach reminded us long ago, the Church of Jesus Christ can never be a sect. Even when it consisted entirely of Mary and John at the foot of the cross, it was universal in form and purpose. 
I've tried to argue that the Schleiermacherian style of interfacing with the culture, massively influential for the past 200 years, is both practically ineffective and theologically compromised. And I propose the model of an assimilating church, neither defensive nor acquiescent, capable of both holding off what it must and taking in what it can. This approach, I would hold, mimics the style of the greatest theologians of culture in the Catholic tradition. Origen, Augustine, Aquinas, Newman, Balthazar, John Paul II, and is congruent with the style and substance of the Vatican II documents. St. Paul told us that in Christ's light, we should test every spirit, rejecting what is bad and retaining what is good. He also instructed us to bring every thought captive to Christ. The method I've advocated honors, I hope, those Pauline directives. And thanks for listening tonight. Thanks. Thank you.